Ezekiel chapter 33, I'm going to read verses 1 through 22 to start. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, and he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning for me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have said, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses, as for the wickedness of the wicked he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his justice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die." None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. Yet your people say the way of the Lord is not just when it is their own way that is not just. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he shall live by this. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways." In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been struck down. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the fugitive came, and he had opened my mouth by the time the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. Now we're going to take some time to break this section down, and then we'll get on to the rest of the chapter in a little bit. As you see in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword, and then he goes on. But I want to deal with the whole idea of the fact that God is actually coming and speaking to Ezekiel and telling him, Hey, tell your people this. Why is that surprising? What if we, he's been struck mute, remember? For the whole three years that the siege of Jerusalem was going on, God had told him, I'm not going to let you speak to them. I'm not going to even have a word for them. He gave, them the, gave Ezekiel the messages for the Gentile nations and those types of things. But it just seems out, out of place that all of a sudden, while he's mute, God says, okay, now speak this word. But he had been told that he wouldn't be able to speak until he got word that the walls of Jerusalem and the city of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And that doesn't happen until verses 21 and 22, he, he talks about that. But look again at verses 21 and 22 and tell me what the clue is in verses 21 and 22 that shows us why it's not weird for God to say to him, <clears throat> speak to the people prior to the hearing of the, the fugitive coming and giving the message. Do you see it? I'm sorry? The, definitely the Lord was on him. What's that? Okay, no, that, that just gives you the date of, 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 uh, that the guy came and told him. Yeah, this, this is, that, that time actually is after, it's about six months after the destruction of the city. It took the guy about six months to get to him. Very good, verse 22. He, God had opened his mouth before the fugitive came. He came to him the night before. 
So we shouldn't be surprised at the fact that he's starting and God says, okay, I got a message for the house of Israel. And Ezekiel hadn't heard the message from the fugitive yet. It's not until later on that he gets the message. But the night beforehand, God had opened his mouth and begun to give him the message. Now, there's something here that I want you to see. Uh, first off, chapter 33 is a transitional chapter between the warnings to Israel and, and the nations in chapters 1 through 32, and then the promise of Israel's future restoration in chapters 34 to the end of the book. And I want you to see this is a midpoint, if you will, of this book. Before this, we've had all the warnings and judgment of what the, what's coming to, with Nebuchadnezzar and so on, and the warnings to the Gentile nations of what's coming to them. After this is going to be God's promise of restoration to the nation of Israel and all the things that he's going to do for their future. And it's going to be a fun study because you're going to see most of what God promises Israel hasn't happened yet. And it's still yet to come. And so just as literal and real were the prophecies that happened prior and they came true, these prophecies for Israel are going to literally come true. And that's going to be a fun study at that time. But chapter 33 is a call for national repentance after the destruction of Jerusalem. So I, don't miss this. He's been warning them, calling them to repentance. Then for three years, he doesn't speak to them. But now, after the destruction of Jerusalem, God opens up Ezekiel's mouth again to preach to the Jews and to call them to national repentance. All right, go to chapter 33 again. In, in verses 1 through 9, we see that God had called Ezekiel to be a watchman on the wall to the people of Israel about the judgment of the sword that came from God against Israel. But why is he calling him to be a watchman on the wall now when the judgment already came? Any ideas? Well, first off, before you try and answer that, go with me back to Ezekiel chapter 3. You're going to see that God actually already gave these exact same words prior to the judgment of Israel. In Ezekiel chapter 3, look at verses 16 through 21. It says, And at the end of seven days the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, or speak to warn the, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will be, have delivered your soul." Again, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you have not warned him. He shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning, and you will have delivered your soul. So does that sound familiar? It's almost word for word what he says again here in chapter 33. So I want you to grasp something here. God had sent Ezekiel to be a watchman on the wall and warn Israel of the coming judgment that was coming with Nebuchadnezzar and so on. They didn't listen to it. God's judgment came. But now there are Jews that have survived. You're going to see this later tonight. They're actually of Jews that not only survived in the captivity, but they're Jews that survived the attack of Jerusalem. And they're not allowed to live in Jerusalem anymore, but they're allowed to live in the area of Judah. We'll get to that later tonight. This is a message to them who are still in the land and a message to the Jews who are alive in captivity, who were taken by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And he's pretty much saying to them, just because the judgment came for the sin, and I got to the point where I said, okay, the sin of the nation has been enough and the individual sin has been enough, that I brought judgment. Don't think for a second that I'm done. I'm still the same holy God that wants you to turn to me in righteousness and turn to me in repentance, you need to warn them still. You need to keep reminding them that I'm still the same God that brought those judgments. And if these people don't respond appropriately, they're next. So that's what he wants him, wants him to do. Now, since God was repeating this message to Ezekiel, the opportunity for Israel to repent and be saved still existed, even though God had already destroyed Jerusalem. But even though corporate Israel would always exist, don't, I don't want you to miss this. Even though corporate Israel, the nation of Israel, will always exist, the repentance and the salvation would occur on an individual basis. And I'm going to pull that out from the scripture for you tonight. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. <clears throat> Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. 
says, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So God clearly says, Israel will always be a nation before me. In Romans chapter 11, Paul talks about the fact that there's always been a remnant chosen by God's grace throughout all of history, throughout all of time. Even when Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God says, relax, Elijah, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. He knew every individual in the nation who was turning to him and those who were turning away from him. Go back to Ezekiel 33 and look at uh, verses uh, 1 through 9 again. And look at the, the, the clear tense and the prepositions that are being used here. We'll start in verse 2. He says, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman, and if, the, if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears, did you catch that? Anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. As you see all the way through, the scripture is very clear that even though God is judging the nation, he's dealing with individuals. Go back to, go to verse 20 in chapter 33. After Israel said that God's way is not just, God says, actually, I'm going to judge each of you according to his ways. So I want you to hear this tonight. There's no promise that the, nation, that the United States of America will always exist before God. There's no promise that we have in Scripture that we will always exist. But at the same time, if he judges our nation and you get caught up in that judgment, God will be dealing with you for your individual walk with him as well. Every time he brings judgment, it's not because, well, we're just going to get put to death because of, God, because of the, 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 our nation's sin. If you're caught up in it, it's because of your sin. Now, I want to clarify as well. We, on this side of the cross, try to read, you'll be saved and you'll not be saved as going to heaven or not going to heaven. What he's dealing with here in the context is just simply whether you live through the judgment or whether you die in the judgment. And that's what he's talking about here. Are all the people that were spared during the judgment of Jerusalem, were they all righteous? Is that why they were spared? No. And the people that all died in the judgment, is that because they were all wicked? No. He's not talking about that in that way. At the same time, don't also lose sight of the fact that if God wants to bring a judgment on a nation, that doesn't mean there isn't going to be some collateral damage, if you will, or some consequences for us who are followers of God in that midst. Jeremiah went through a whole lot of mess. He was turned to the Lord, righteous in God's eyes because of his faith in, in God. Yet Jeremiah had it real bad through that whole time. Ezekiel himself, Daniel, all these guys, they actually had consequences because of the nation they were living in. But I want you to see that as Israel thought, well, he's just randomly judging. It's not fair. Let me show you. Job felt that way, too. Go with me to Job chapter 9. You're going to get a little lanyap. That's from my years in Louisiana. You're going to get some, some bonus stuff that people last night didn't get. But go to Job chapter 9. Look at verse 22 and following. Job's a little frustrated at this point because he doesn't understand why God allowed all of his kids to be killed and lose all his possessions and now his health. And he says, it's all one. Therefore, I say, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it's not him, who then is it? Sounds like he's a little frustrated with God, don't you think? He was at that time. Go ahead. Jim, I keep coming back to Isaiah 57, 1 and 2. Which is? It goes like this. The righteous perish. No one takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous are taken away from evil. Yep. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. In other words, 
we think that the righteous being taken away, they've been punished while God is bringing them home. Exactly. God's using the judgment to call everyone to a checkup. Sometimes the righteous, like we saw last week, you weren't here for last week, but precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. Sometimes, like you said, God actually just spares us what's to come. That's a wonderful thing. It's what the rapture is about as well. But at the same time, he's using the warnings as a everybody, as I'm dealing with the nation, use this opportunity for an individual checkup. Now, he also tells Ezekiel that he's called him to be a watchman to the house of Israel. And if he doesn't warn them, their blood's going to be on his head. He said, if he warns them and they don't listen, that's between them and God. You'll have saved your own soul. Imagine the amount of accountability Jonah would have had if he hadn't received the mercy of God to get a second chance and the grace of God to get a second chance to go preach that message. Because if the scripture says, God called you to go speak to a certain people, and Jonah had been called to speak to Nineveh, and Jonah didn't just say no, folks. He said, heck no. And he went in the other direction. But God in his mercy gave him another opportunity, and he went and preached the message. He didn't even care whether or not they listened. Actually hoped they didn't. But the scripture said his, their blood would have been on his head if he hadn't have told them. So what I want to do is I'm going to ask you a tough question tonight. But, and I'm going to give you the answer in a second, but I'm going to use a lot of scriptures to do so. But the tough question I want you to answer, I want you to answer from scripture, again, not from your, well, I think, again, we've got to get away from these days in which we live where everybody's so, so smart, and we get all this human wisdom. We've got to stop answering theological questions with our opinions and what we think. I'm tired of hearing people say, well, I think God is like this. No, no, no. I don't want to care what you think. I want to know what the scripture says. So here's your question. Is this being accountable for people's blood something for all of us or only for the prophets? Now, don't answer quickly because the answer is not easy. But is this being accountable for people's blood for all of us or only for prophets? And... You can share with me your guesses, but give me your scripture for why you're guessing that. And if you don't know, that's a great answer, because that's actually one of the best things we can do nowadays is say, I don't know. And hopefully that causes us to search. Anybody want to take a shot at it? Yeah, we're supposed to be aware of false prophets. All right, so you're saying, everybody, I'm going to tell you you're partly right, but not all right. What's your thought? I was just trying to say that you're responsible for saying what the Lord has given you. Okay, now you're going down. Okay, you're getting real close to where we're going here. Here's the answer. The answer is this. It does apply to us, but not on the level of the prophets. Let me say that to you again, and I'm going to explain what I'm talking about. This being accountable for the people that God's told us to speak to does apply to us. I'm going to show you from Scripture that it does. But none of us are being held accountable on the same level that he would a prophet. Do you understand what I'm saying? Go with me to James chapter 3. Let me show you what I mean. I really want to take some time to kind of walk you through this tonight. Because I want to be able to set you free from some of the fear and the guilt that's happened to us over the years. Yet at the same time, I want you to see from Scripture that you have a responsibility. In James chapter 3, look at verse 1. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The Scripture is very, very clear that those of us who have been given the role to preach and to teach are going to be judged in higher accountability by God with a greater strictness. We've been given more opportunities, more people that we're supposed to speak to, and because of that, we'll be held in a higher accountability. Not everybody should see themselves as a preacher or a teacher. All right? Now, at the same time, we're not going to turn there, but if you were to go to Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 and 15, you remember the parable of the talents? How the master gave one 
five talents, another two talents, another one talent. And what does the rest of the scripture say? Each according to their ability. He did not give the same amount of responsibility to each one. One was only given two talents. Another one was given five, but each according to their ability. And if you go back and look at the time in that parable where he reckons with them and he comes, he judges them according to what they'd done with what he gave them to do. The one who had the five, by God's grace, had turned into ten. And God says, you did awesome. Great job. Well done. The one that had the two and by God's grace turned it into four. God says, well done. He doesn't say, hey, the other guy just had ten. Where's yours? No. He held them accountable for what God had for each of them to do. So, yes, it does apply to us, but it doesn't apply to us on the same level that it would a prophet. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, there's more to this as well. I want you to see it. Go to Romans chapter 12. Look at verses 3 through 8. Well, people don't realize what I'm about to read to you where we've just left off is that famous passage about offering your body as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. But don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the end of verse two says this, then you'll be able to test and know and approve what the Lord's will is. Then he goes into verse three, for by the grace given to me. The responsibility God gave me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many parts, Scripture in the ESV has the word members, and I, I hate the word member, so, because I've been a pastor for too long and dealt with too many member, church members. But the word really means parts, as our body has many parts, and all don't have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually parts one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Let us use them. If it's prophecy in proportion to our faith. Hang on for a second. Do you realize that even those of us who have been called by God and gifted by God to preach all don't have the same level of responsibility? There are those that are the Billy Grahams who have been gifted and called by God to preach to millions. There are others who God's called to pastor a little church in Tennessee somewhere, and God hasn't called him to preach to millions. They need to preach to who it is that God's called them to. The problem is we have over the years man-centered most of this, our preaching, and we've told everybody, you need to get out and go into all the world and make disciples. And I'm going to show you that even though Jesus told his disciples, his apostles, you're going to go into all the world and make disciples, scripturally, he didn't expect them even to go into all the world. They would begin, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. But what does Jesus say in Matthew 28 in that famous passage that we use to tell everybody to go into all the world. He said, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Listen closely. That means that Jesus talking to guys that weren't going to live to the end of the age was giving a hint that this was going to be happening, beginning with them in the areas that he sends them to. And ultimately, when you get to the end of the age, we'll have gone to all the nations. Do you see what I'm saying? John was exiled to the island of Patmos. He never was able to even get to all the nations and all the world. And if you study the apostles, each of them, many were killed very early. They never made it to all the nations. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the innermost parts of the world. And then on top of that, he says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. But that doesn't mean that each of them was supposed to go to every single nation. And we have to be real careful that we don't fall prey to that as well. Preachers have to understand, use your prophecy in proportion to the faith that God's given you. If he's gifted you and called you to speak to many, many, many people, then do it. If he's gifted you and called you to speak to a few and shepherd a few, that's what you're responsible for. And some are given five, others are given two, others are given one, each according to their ability. And we've got to stop judging how well we're doing. I get so tired of pastors getting together at pastor's conferences and competing with how many baptisms you had this year, how many, how many salvations. It's not a contest. We've all been given different gifts and different responsibilities, and not only for preachers, if it's service, in serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Do you know that God chooses who we're to speak to and when? Go to Matthew chapter 10. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 5 through 15. 
These are the same guys that Jesus told in Matthew 28 that he wants them to make disciples of all nations. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 15, these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who's worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone won't receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah for, then, for that town. You've done your job when you go where I tell you to go and preach what I tell you to preach. And don't worry about the results. But listen, he told the twelve you don't go right now to the Gentiles, nor to the Samaritans, only to the lost sheep of Israel. Right. Uh, actually, it was Philip. Actually, no, it was Paul. It was Paul and Barnabas. Tried, in Acts 16, tried to go into Asia, but the Spirit said no. Tried to go into Mysia, but the Spirit said no. Exactly. And at the same time, this is the same Jesus that said, go make disciples of all nations. But the, listen, God still gets to pick who you go to and when. Don't think... When you hear that preaching, then we got to go. No, you go where he tells you to go. And here at this time, they're still preaching the message to the Jews. Remember, it was to the Jews first and eventually the Gentiles. There was going to come a point where the Jews had been offered the kingdom. They were going to reject it. They're going to kill the Messiah. And then he was going to start drawing the Gentiles to make Israel jealous for a period of time. And that's coming to a close very soon. And he's going to finish with Israel. But at the same time, if these guys had gotten together and said, well, I think God still loves the Gentiles, too. And God cares for the Samaritans, too. They could have even found Bible verses that talk about how he would be a light to the Gentiles. They would have sinned at that moment, coming up with a better plan to reach more people. And I want to just say something to you. As we hear a lot of preaching today about how we can reach more people, I just want to caution you is that man's effort to reach more people or are you specifically going where God told you to go? You see, it sounds like good preaching. We need to reach more people. We need to go out and knock on more doors. I'm going to tell you, the scripture says, and I'm not done showing you yet, that God determines where we go and when we go and who we go to and what level each of us are responsible for when it comes to the blood of other people. Go to Mark chapter, uh, no, Matthew 19. We're in Matthew 10. Go to Matthew 19. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Here Jesus just said, those who are willing to go overseas, those who are willing to leave home, leave their family, and be used of God to bring the gospel message to other nations, they're going to receive a hundredfold. Go to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Jesus has just healed the demoniac. In verse 18, it says, As he, Jesus, was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Didn't Jesus say those who are willing to leave home will be rewarded? Yet this guy, he's willing to leave home. He wants to get in the boat and go on traveling ministry with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, actually, I want you to go home. So which is it? Some that we're supposed to go out or that we're supposed to stay home? Yes. Whatever he's called you to do. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Sorry, chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. 
Look at verses 7 through 9. Paul says, On the contrary, when they, this is the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, that's Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. It just has to, it has to remember the poor. Paul said, it became evident that God's call on my life was to go to the Gentiles. God's call on Peter's life was to go to the Jews. Now, by the way, did Paul have a heart for the nation of Israel? Did Paul want the Jews to be saved? You go to Romans chapter 9, he says if he could go to hell and that would cause Israel to be saved, he'd do it. He loved his people, but God had not called him to go to his people. God had called him to go to the Gentiles. Does that mean God would never use Peter to speak to a Gentile? No, God actually had Cornelius be the one that heard from Peter. But Peter's call was to the Jews. Folks, let me just tell you, we are all accountable for some people's blood. But none of us are on the level of a prophet. You have to be willing to let the Lord show you where it is that you're to go and who it is that you're to speak to. Now listen closely. You could all say, Jim, I believe that there were all different responsibilities and we all have different calls and not everybody's called to go everywhere and not everybody's called to stay home. It's all different and we need to make sure that we're speaking to whom God tells us to. But you haven't showed me anything from the scripture that says that I'm accountable for their blood. And you would be right. I haven't. Till now, go to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verses 24 through 27. Paul's saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders there in Miletus. In verse 24, he says, I don't account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. If only I may finish my course. Did you catch that? The race marked out for me, my course, and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. By the way, let me just say something to you real quick. There are some people that are called by God to go stand on the street corner and preach. But those people have a tendency to get on other Christians who aren't doing the same thing. Have you ever run into those kind of people? God, I know God's called me to do it. He's got to call you too. No, no, no. Paul said, I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none among you whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of y'all, if you will. For I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Do you see it? You will be accountable in some way. You won't lose your salvation, but in some way, shape, or form, you will be accountable for the blood of someone who you were supposed to talk to that you didn't. Now, before you get scared again, let me ask an honest question. And I want to show a hands. Have any of you ever felt like God was leading you to talk to somebody, but you chickened out? Remember Jonah? Jonah didn't just chicken out. He said, I won't do it. And guess what? God was merciful and gave him another opportunity. God will do the same for you. He's just looking for willing hearts. So none of you are on the same level of Jim Johnson, if you will, in responsibility. But I don't have the same level as other preachers in the world. But you do have a responsibility. Some of you, it might be to your grandchildren. Some of it might just be to your family. Others, it could be your neighbors, your work. Again, let the Lord show you. We all automatically assume that it's your neighbor. And it might not be. It might not be. That's hard for us to grasp. But he might not have for you to be the one that talks to your neighbor. He might have in mind somebody else. I don't know. So don't let the preacher tell you who it is you're supposed to go talk to. But stay open to the Spirit. And let him show you who it is that he wants to use you in their life just to share whatever he's told you to share. You can still pray for everybody. Yeah, you can pray. Of course, Paul prayed all the time for his people. 
And God may put it on your heart and he may send you overseas. Go ahead. I would agree 100%. Say, for example, say your gift is generosity and giving, as Paul showed us, that that's one of them. But at the same, exactly. If you, by the way, I, I know of people that have this gift. They're friends of mine, and they're in different parts of the country, but God's blessed them with a lot of money, and they're able to make a lot of money, but he gave them that money because he wanted them to distribute it. And these people give a lot to ministries all over the globe. But one of the problems they have is once people find out they have money, they get requests from everywhere. And how do you know which ones God wants you to give to? Well, if your giving is giving, if your gift is giving, give. No, where God tells you and how God tells you. So I, I would agree. I would agree. Yes. And who is equal to such a task? That verse goes on and says, none of us. And sometimes he uses, sometimes he uses us and we don't even know it. But it is a reality. Exactly, exactly. Go back to chapter 33 of Ezekiel. Because of what is written here in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 33, you see in the first verses, because of God's judgment on the nation of Israel, because of their sin, many believed it was too late for them and they had no hope. And God said, no, 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 I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. They were saying, you know, surely our transgressions and our sins upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? And God says, look, you still have opportunity. You still have hope. I'm not, the fact that you're still alive means you have an opportunity. But then he goes on and he says, and I'm not going to take the time to reread it to you in verses 12 through 20, about the one who is righteous but then sins all his righteousness won't do him any good. And the one who's wicked, but then does righteousness, he won't be judged for his wickedness because he'll be considered righteous. One could easily develop a work salvation teaching from those verses. Could you not? As you were listening to it, then it sounded like if you do good, you're righteous. And if you do bad, you're not righteous. And you, one could build a doctrine of work salvation from this. Remember, like I said, it's not talking salvation and not salvation. It's talking life and death because of judge, physical judgment. But at the same time, we need to make sure the whole of Scripture is what speaks to us. So I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 2. I saw something in my study that I'd never really seen before. But Romans chapter 2 actually reads like Ezekiel 33 in those verses. And I'd never seen it before. And Romans chapter 2, kind of catch you up. Paul's been laying the fact that everyone's guilty. You know, and that there's sin that is for the Jew and the Gentile. Look at verse 6. He says, he will, chapter 2 of Romans, he will render to each one according to his works. Does that sound familiar? That's Ezekiel 33.20. I'm going to judge each of you according to your ways. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there'll be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor for, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Doesn't that sound like work salvation? You do good, you're righteous. If you don't do bad, you're not. You, you want to work for uh, eternal life, you'll be given it. Then he goes on, and I don't have the time because of how much we still need to cover tonight. I could read to you verses 12 and following, but I, let me just tell you. He says in verses 12 through 16, let me paraphrase it. He says, but even those Gentiles who don't have the law, God's revealed his law to their hearts. And their conscience has convicted them. Let me ask you this question. It, it, first, I'll make a statement. Everybody's born with a sense of right and wrong. Now, we might not all agree on what we think is right and wrong. If you, if you even go to a prison, you'll have mass murderers who will beat the tar or try to kill a child molester who's there in the prison. Because in the mass murderer's mind, that guy is so evil. How could he do such a thing? Even a mass murderer has a sense of what they think is right and wrong. 
even though we would say killing people's wrong, but he, you know what I'm saying? Let me ask you this question. Have you ever gone against what you sensed was right and wrong in your inner person? Yes, every one of us have, probably daily. God's shown you that you're a lawbreaker even if you didn't know the law. That's what verses 12 through 16 say. Then he goes on in verse 17 and following, and he says, hey, by the way, you guys call yourself a Jew, and you boast on the fact that you know the law and all this stuff, and that you know stuff that the Gentiles don't know. Um, he says, uh, you know the law says don't steal. Do you steal? You know the law says uh, don't commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? And he goes on, and he shows them that we're all guilty. And he goes to verse 25. This is where it starts to change now. He's been preaching that it sounds like salvation comes by being good versus being bad. But it starts to make a change here in verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? He, then he who is physically uncircumcised, Gentiles, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code in, the circum, in circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, not by what you do or don't do. His praise is not from man, from, but from God. Here he starts to say, by the way, those of you that are proud of your circumcision, that you've received this mark on your body that sets you apart as a special person before God, um, if you don't obey God's law, the person who didn't receive that physical circumcision but does is going to show you that they're actually more circumcised than you are. The circumcision is of the heart, and it's inward. And this has to be done, how? By the Spirit, not by man. And then in chapter 3, Paul goes, he's been laying this foundation about how God's wrath is against sin, and it's not just against the Gentiles, it's also against the Jew. And he goes on, and he says in verse 9, What then, are we, any, we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, before I go any further, let me ask you a question. Looking at your scriptures... Was Paul sharing an opinion about how bad he thought everybody was? Or was he doing something else? He was quoting. You see how it's marked in your Bible? You see how it's a little bit different in how it's written? He's quoting the Old Testament, which had all along said, no one is righteous. That's not a New Testament thought. That's an Old Testament thing. Then why? Why then does we see, do we see Ezekiel, and also Paul brings it out a little bit here in Romans 2. Why does Ezekiel say, if you're righteous, don't trust in your righteousness, because if you do a bad stuff, you'll be considered wicked. But if you're wicked, don't think that there's no hope for you, because if you do right, then you'll be righteous. Why? Well, you don't have to answer that, because the next verse does. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Remember, he's already said that the Jews had the written law, but so did the Gentiles. They had the law too. He wrote on their hearts. So that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Why was God telling Ezekiel to tell him, look, if you're wicked, all you got to do is be righteous and you're okay? Oh, but by the way, if you're righteous and then you do a sin, you've lost all your righteousness? Why did he tell him that? The same reason that Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. By the way, is that possible? Not really. See, not apart from Christ. Through Jesus, we can be considered righteous. But this woman, 
Jesus, she just had her life spared. She was seconds from death. She was to be stoned. But Jesus says, go, I don't condemn you. Just don't sin anymore. He could have added these words. Good luck. Put yourself in one of those people's shoes that Ezekiel's speaking to. All right? I'm going to be righteous from now on. I've been wicked, but I'm going to be righteous from now on. Because if I'm righteous, I'm good. And then he does a couple of good stuff. But then he doesn't. And what Ezekiel said? Oh, if you're righteous and you do bad stuff, all your righteousness is lost. You can just go through that cycle. And the point of the law is to show us we can't keep the law. The purpose of the law is to make us conscious of our sin. That's why Ezekiel's told that. You're not building a work salvation. Paul wasn't building a work salvation in chapter 2. He was leading us to that point where we'd realize, I keep trying, but I can't. Oh, by the way, let me give you one more verse. James chapter 2, verse 10. Be able to keep the whole law, yet stumble at just one point. You're guilty as if you broke it all. Oh, the next verse gets even better. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. How are we righteous? Through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the only way. Why did the Bible tell us to go and try to be more righteous and you'll get righteousness? Because you had to try it. The good news of Jesus dying for your sins is not good news till you understand the bad news. We've got a world out there today that doesn't think that they're that bad. They need to keep trying to keep the law before they can come to the Savior. You go up to a person that thinks, I'm not that bad of a person. My, you know, I think I'm going to be okay when I stand before the big end. I got good news for you. Jesus died for your sins. They don't think they need it. It's, it's foolishness to them. Oh, but you get somebody that has tried to be righteous and realizes they can't. That's great news. And they're ready to hear it. Now, in Ezekiel, go back to Ezekiel 33. Look at verses 23 through 29. And just like last night, I'm going to have to give you a lot of scriptures to write down. We won't have time to read them in order to get to where we need to get and to keep you with Tuesday night's group. Ezekiel 33, verses 23 through 29. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the inhabitants of these waste places in the land of Israel. I'm going to show you. There were people that survived the attack on Jerusalem, but they, were, they lived now in Judah. They're not in the city. In the, in the waste pl- inhabitants of the waste places in the land of Israel keep saying Abraham was only one man, yet he, only, yet he got possession of the land. But we're many. The land is surely given to us to possess. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, you eat the flesh with blood, and you lift up your eyes to idols and shed blood. Shall you then possess the land? You rely on the sword. You commit abominations, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife. Shall you then possess the land? Say this to them, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely those who are in the waste places shall fall by the sword, and whoever's in the open field, I will give to the beast of the, to be devoured, and those who are in strongholds and in the caves shall die by pestilence, and I'll make the land a desolation and a waste, and her proud uh, might shall come to an end, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that none will pass through." Then they will know that I am the Lord when I have made the land a desolation and a waste because of their, all their abominations that they have committed. He said to those, Ezekiel was told to preach to those people still left in Israel who were thinking, well, Abraham was only one man and God gave him the land. What is lots of us? So surely this land's given to us. God says, no, um, I already prophesied through Jeremiah that I was going to make the land a waste. And you guys, just because you're still in the land doesn't mean that you're okay. You're still eating meat with blood, and I told you not to. You're defiling your neighbor's wife. You're still doing all the stuff that I judge the people of Israel for anyway. Don't think for a second that you're going to be, okay, you're going to be removed from the land as well because it's supposed to be desolate for a period of time. I'm not going to have you turn there, but write down Jeremiah 39, verses 1 through 10. Jeremiah 39, verses 1 through 10, and Jeremiah 52, 12 through 16. Jeremiah 39, 1 through 10, Jeremiah 52, 12 through 16, both of those places show that when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, he carried off everybody in the city. But the poorest people of the land were left in the land, not in the city, but in the land to work some of the land and stuff like that. There were people left 
These are the people that Ezekiel is talking to, and this is the ones who are going to be removed from the land. Now, God said to them, I'm going to scatter you from the land as well. He had already promised to give the land 70 years of rest. Go to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, verses 9 through 11. In Jeremiah 25, verse 9, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So he's already prophesied that the land would be empty for 70 years. Now why? Go with me to Leviticus chapter 25, and I'll show you the beginning of why. Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. I'm looking at it going, this doesn't read right. Then I looked up and realized I was in Deuteronomy instead of Leviticus. That would make sense. Leviticus 25, verses 1 through 7. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and your male and your female slaves and your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and the wild animals that are in your land. All its yields shall be for food. What he says is this. I want you to trust me. And I've designed not only a day of rest where you don't do any work, where you trust me. I've designed a Sabbath year of rest every seven years for the land. You can harvest and plant and do all that every six years. But on the seventh year, you're not to plant. You're not to do any of that kind of stuff. Whatever grows from what's left over in the field will be enough to take care of you. You won't have to plant or harvest. I want the land to get a rest. And I'm doing this for you. But the Jews did not trust God. And they kept harvesting and planting every single year, and they never gave the land the rest. And God kept track of how many Sabbaths they never gave the land the rest. And anyone want to take a guess and at the point that God brings this judgment? How many Sabbath years it's been? Seventy of them. And he says, okay, I'm going to remove you from the land and give that land 70 years of rest that it's owed. Go to Leviticus 26. Look at verses 33 through 35. If you remember Leviticus 26, that whole section that God laid out from what would happen if they didn't obey him. And we've been studying it off and on. Verse 33, I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheathe the sword after you and the land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste. The land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. It shall have rest. The rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. Isn't that interesting? Chapter 25, he says, I want you all to give it a rest every seven years. Seventh year, give the land a rest. Trust me, whatever grows up in that land will be enough for you and your cattle. You won't even have to work it. All you do is just harvest it and it'll take care of you. But they didn't do it. In chapter 26, God says before they even started, oh, by the way, you're not going to do it. And I'm going to scatter you from the land because of it. And every year that it needs the rest, that's the, I'm going to, have you out of the land for that. Isn't that interesting how God knows? It's kind of like saying to your kid, don't eat that cookie. But when you eat that cookie, here's what I'm going to do. If you were to go to 2 Chronicles and write it down, 2 Chronicles 36, 17 through 21, you'll see that the writer of 2 Chronicles recorded that God removed them from the land for the period of time that God had prophesied that he would through Jeremiah, which was... It's okay. Yes, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 17 through 21. And he pretty much says, for all the time that God had prophesied that he'd removed from the land is what he did, and was 70 years. Now, again, for the sake of time, actually, I think we have time to do this one. Go to 2 Kings 25. 
2 Kings 25. Look at verses 22 through 26. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, governor. All right, so the people that were left in the land, Nebuchadnezzar left this guy Gedaliah in charge over the people of the land. We're not going to read verses 23 and following. I want you to jump down to verse 25. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Then all the people, both small and great, the captains of the forces, arose and went to Egypt, for they were, they were afraid of the Chaldeans. So all these people were left in the land. They were the poorest of the land were left. God put, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar puts Gedaliah in charge. But not long after that, someone comes and kills Gedaliah. And because of the fear of the Babylonians, because of that, all the people, all of the people that were left in the land of Judah, left. Just like God said was have to happen. Now, in the four minutes that we have left, I want you to write down this scripture passage. And I want you to take a look at it later. It's a long one. I was going to read it to you, but we don't have time tonight. Jeremiah chapter 41, verses 16 through chapter 43, verse 7. Jeremiah 41, starting in verse 16, all the way through chapter 43, verse 7. Because as I was doing a study about this, I found something very interesting. He says to them, you're not to stay in the land. You're going to be, don't think it's given to you. You're going to be removed from it. But if you look at Jeremiah's account, remember, some of you may not know this, Jeremiah was one of the people left in the land after the attack by Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar calls him and says, you got a choice. Do you want to come with us and we'll take care, we'll get care of you in Babylon? You can just come with us. We'll make sure you're taken real well care of, or you can stay here with your people. What do you want to do? And oh, by the way, what was left in, in Judah and in Jerusalem? <laughs> Nothing. But Jeremiah, because he knew that that's what God had called him to be a prophet to the people in the land, he stayed with those people. And they didn't even treat him good. He could have had it comfy in Babylon, but he decided to stay with the people. That's what God told him to do. And if you read that section of scripture, there's something that's going on behind the scenes that you don't see in Ezekiel and you don't see in 2 Kings. Jeremiah actually has been given a word from the Lord to tell them, if you'll humble yourself and submit to the king of Babylon, you can stay in the land and it'll be well with you. Don't go to Egypt. God says, don't go to Egypt. Actually, to back it up, the people come and they say, um, what's the word of the Lord? What's the word of the Lord? We'll do it. We'll do it. If you read it, Duke, they say, just tell us what God says, we'll do it. And Jeremiah says, here's the word of the Lord. He says, don't go to Egypt. Stay here and it'll be well with you. Oh, by the way, what did they all do? We read it there in 2 Kings. They didn't listen to Jeremiah. And they went to Egypt. Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Look at verses 30 through the end of the chapter. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls, this is the people in Babylon. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear the word, hear what the Lord, word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as a people, come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well, plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Isn't that interesting? The same time that the people are saying, tell us, Jeremiah, what's the word from the Lord? We're going to do it. And then they don't do it. Ezekiel's told to tell the people in Babylon, or he's told about the people in Babylon. They come and listen to you. They always say, come tell us what God says, but they're not going to do it either. But when all this stuff that I say through you and through Jeremiah comes to fruition, they'll know that a prophet's been among them. 
I'm going to close tonight by just saying this. And I want you to hear it for what I mean. For many years, and I thank God for it because it's him and it's not me. I've been told by many people, Jim, we love hearing you preach and teach the word of God. And in my flesh, I love that. But at the same time, I hope it's much more than that. I hope you are taking to heart what God uses me to speak. That you're applying it and that you're doing it. The last thing I want to do is have a ministry, as Paul said, that's in vain. Where people say he was fun to listen to, but they don't do it. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.